Tuesday, September 11th, 2001, started as a spectacular late summer day. The sun was bright, and there wasn't a cloud in the sky. The temperature in New York City that morning was 64 degrees, with an expected high for that day of 80. Millions of people up and down the eastern seaboard were getting up and going to school or work like any other normal weekday. It was at 8.46 a.m. Eastern Standard Time when it stopped being a normal weekday. That was when American Airlines Flight 11 crashed into the North Tower of the World Trade Center, killing everyone on board instantly as well as an unknown number of people inside the building. I'm David DeSola, and this is Zero Hour, a history of 9-11. This podcast will look back on the people and events leading up to that day and its aftermath. It was the defining event of the early 21st century, one whose consequences are still being felt and playing out two decades later. It changed the way we travel, our sense of security, and the way we interact with the rest of the world. It became the demarcation line of recent history. There was a before and an after, and we have been living in the after for almost a generation now. It is a story with many characters that played out in two dozen countries on four continents over the course of several decades. It is a story of heroes and villains, of patriots and fanatics, of politics and religion, and of life and death. This episode will focus on the early life and family history of Osama bin Laden, as well as his role in the Soviet war in Afghanistan and the founding of Al-Qaeda. Keep in mind, many stories about bin Laden's life are contradictory or even outright false, depending on the source. This includes comments from bin Laden himself. The story begins in the mid-1950s, when Saudi construction tycoon Mohammed bin Laden married a 14-year-old Syrian named Alia al-Ghanem. That marriage led to the birth of their only son, Osama bin Mohammed bin Awad bin Laden, in the Islamic year 1377. Trying to pin his birth date on the Roman calendar, bin Laden himself said in an interview that he was born in Riyadh on March 10, 1957. His first wife's memoir lists his birthday as February 15, 1957. The name Osama means lion, and bin Laden claimed that he was named after Osama bin Zaid, one of the companions of the Prophet Muhammad. The elder bin Laden had multiple wives and multiple heirs. Osama was estimated to be the 17th of Muhammad's 54 offspring, with 22 different women. His parents divorced in 1959, and his mother married Muhammad al-Atas, a man who worked at her ex-husband's company. They would have four children together. Mohammed bin Laden founded the Saudi bin Laden Group in 1931 as a general contractor. According to the group's official history, quote, the company has grown in parallel with the growth and prosperity of the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. The same biography says that over time, the company expanded into other ventures, ranging from, quote, traditional construction business to industrial and power projects, petroleum, chemicals and mining, telecommunications operations and maintenance, manufacturing and trading. The Saudi Bin Laden Group would become the royal family's go-to construction company. There would be many projects as the family sought to modernize their kingdom, with revenues coming from the oil boom. The Saudi Bin Laden Group was picked to do renovation and modernization projects in Mecca and Medina, the two holiest sites in the Islamic religion. The cost of the projects, which took years to complete, have been estimated in the tens to hundreds of millions of dollars. The Saudi bin Laden group would grow into a multi-billion dollar empire by the 1990s. Mohammed bin Laden died in a plane crash on September 3, 1967. According to Steve Call, 
Muhammad's 25 sons and 29 daughters inherited shares at a 2 to 1 ratio in their father's company. Each male got approximately 2.27% of the company's shares, while each female got slightly more than 1%. In his biography, The Bin Ladens, Steve Call notes that Muhammad's sons would share ownership of about 50% of the company, his daughters would own about 30%, and his widows owned most of what was left. Osama would have been about 10 years old at the time. According to former CIA analyst and Bin Laden biographer Michael Scheuer, Osama once told his sons that he only saw his father five times. In the interest of full disclosure, I am a former graduate student of Michael Scheuer's. The only accounts to date of how he reacted to the loss of his father come from the only members of his immediate family who have ever gone on the record. His first wife, Najwa, wrote in her memoir, quote, He had greatly loved and respected his father. Osama had always been unusually restrained in his manner and in his speech, but he was so stricken by the death of his father that he became even more subdued. Through the years, he spoke little of the tragic incident. In the same book, his fourth son Omar writes that his father told him he coped during this difficult period of his life by memorizing the Quran. Najwa also described Osama as a young boy, writing, quote, He was proud but not arrogant. He was delicate but not weak. He was grave but not severe. Certainly, he was vastly different from my very boisterous brothers, who were always teasing me about one thing or another. I had never been around such a soft-spoken, serious boy. Despite his serene demeanor, no one ever thought of Osama as being weak-willed, for his character was strong and firm. Brian Fifield Shaler, who was 11-year-old Osama's English teacher, described his former student as, quote, extraordinarily courteous, but also somewhat shy in the classroom compared to other students. He stood out, not only because of his family's surname, but also because of his height. He wasn't an exceptional student, but he wasn't at the bottom of the class either. Osama enrolled at the Altager Middle School in 1963, which was considered the most prestigious school in Jeddah in the 1960s and 70s. It was also considered one of the most progressive in the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. According to journalist Steve Call, quote, it had a relatively secular flavor. Students wore uniforms inspired by British and American prep schools, not the traditional Saudi attire. According to Call, Osama was invited to join the Islamic study group at the school in 1971 or 1972, when he was in 8th or 9th grade. One of his classmates during this period described him as, quote, an honorable student. He kept to himself, but he was honest. At that time, many of the teachers in Saudi high schools and universities were Syrians or Egyptians, who in some cases had been involved with Islamist dissident groups back home. Some of them were members of or inspired by the Muslim Brotherhood, an Islamist organization founded in Egypt in 1928. According to the Council on Foreign Relations, quote, The Brotherhood's mission is to Islamize society through the promotion of religious law, values, and morals. It has long combined preaching and political activism with social welfare to advance this objective. Although political organizing was forbidden in the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, King Faisal allowed them into the country. The hope was that their emphasis on Islamic teachings would protect young minds from radical ideas of the day, like socialism or secular pan-Arab nationalism, which had been spreading throughout the Middle East since the 50s. Saudi Arabia was also short on qualified teachers at the time. The group Osama got involved with was run by a Syrian physical education teacher, who combined religion with sports. Bin Laden's classmate left the group, but noted that over the next several years he saw Bin Laden and others in the group 
adopt the dress styles and views of Islamic activists their age. It is not known if Osama's teacher was a member of the Muslim Brotherhood. In 1974, Osama married his first wife, a Syrian first cousin named Najwa Ghanem. He was 17 at the time and still had two years left to finish high school. She was 15. Over the years, they would have 11 children together. According to British journalists Kathy Scott Clark and Adrian Levy, some of their sons were born with developmental problems, possibly because their parents were first cousins. Two of them had hydrocephalus, and another was autistic. According to the report, quote, Osama refused conventional treatment for them, preferring to put his faith in desert remedies and the hands of God. According to the Quran, men can be married to a maximum of four wives at one time, only on the condition that he can treat each of them equally. Over the years, Osama bin Laden took the maximum of four wives, adopting the same polygamous lifestyle that his father did. In 1982 or 1983, he married his second wife, Khadija Sharif. She was seven years his senior, had a PhD in child psychology, and taught at the women's college at King Abdulaziz University. He would eventually divorce her. The last three wives and at least some of their children were with him until the end at the Abbottabad compound. Between his five wives, Bin Laden is thought to have fathered as many as two dozen children. After graduating from high school in 1976, Osama went on to attend King Abdulaziz University in Jeddah, where he studied economics and public administration. While he was there, he was influenced by several professors with ties to the Muslim Brotherhood. He got a part-time job in the family business leveling hills in the area around Mecca so that the Saudi Bin Laden group could build hotels, highways, and pilgrimage centers. His first son was born that same year. After years of silence, Osama's mother, Aliyah Ghanem, finally spoke on the record to The Guardian in 2018. She says he was radicalized during his college years. Quote, The people at university changed him, she told the newspaper. He became a different man. He was a very good child until he met some people who pretty much brainwashed him in his early 20s. You can call it a cult. They got money for their cause. I would always tell him to stay away from them, and he would never admit to me what he was doing because he loved me so much. Bin Laden is said by some journalists and scholars to have graduated in 1981. However, according to journalist Lawrence Wright, his work-study schedule, combined with his family life, made his situation untenable. He wrote, quote, At the end of the semester, he dropped out of the university, a year short of graduation, and went to work for the company full-time. This account is corroborated in Najwa bin Laden's memoir, which says he was a university student for three or four years but left a few terms before graduating. The book cites his jihad responsibilities as the reason for his dropping out. Relatively little was known about Osama bin Laden as a father and husband until his first wife Najwa and their fourth son Omar bin Laden co-wrote a memoir titled Growing Up Bin Laden. In 1979, Bin Laden took his pregnant wife and their two young sons on a two-week trip to the United States. He left them in Indiana in the care of a female friend of his wife, while he traveled alone to Los Angeles. According to Najwa Bin Laden, he was there to meet with Palestinian cleric Abdullah Azam, a man who would have a profound influence on his life and will be discussed in greater detail later in this episode. Azam was traveling on a speaking tour recruiting for jihad. Najwa wrote of their collective impressions of America at the end of that trip, quote, As far as the country itself goes, my husband and I did not hate America, yet we did not love it. Omar recalled his father having a sharp mind and a very good memory, particularly when it came to mathematical calculations and religion. He also recalled his father's piety, which could make for some very uncomfortable living. 
Although the family was living in Jeddah, a city with an average daily high temperature of 98 degrees Fahrenheit during the hot season, Osama bin Laden forbade the use of air conditioners and refrigerators in their home. His sons all suffered from asthma, which could affect them while playing sports in the desert. Some of them had to be hospitalized. When a doctor suggested that Osama keep a supply of Ventolin on hand and to have his children use inhalers, he refused. Osama's recommended treatment for an asthma attack was breaking off a piece of honeycomb and breathing through it. When Abdullah, Osama's firstborn son, was old enough, he bought his own supply of Ventolin and an inhaler in secret. His sons were forbidden to drink American-made soft drinks like Pepsi, but that didn't stop them when he wasn't around. They also did not have a television. Omar quotes his father saying, quote, Islamic beliefs are corrupted by modernization. The elder bin Laden's views were hypocritical. He did not have a problem using modern amenities and technologies as part of his terrorist activities. One of his few hobbies where he did enjoy his wealth was buying new cars and driving them at fast speeds. 1979 was an incredibly consequential year in Osama's life, according to bin Laden biographer Peter Bergen. Quote, it was the dawn of a new century in the Muslim calendar, traditionally a time of change. During that same year, four monumental events happened that shook the Muslim world and the world at large. The Iranian Revolution, the Iran hostage crisis, the seizure of the Grand Mosque in Mecca by armed militants, and the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. It's worth noting the last two events on that list. The seizure of the Grand Mosque gave way to the Islamic awakening in Saudi Arabia, called the Sawa. Former CIA analyst Paul Pillar explained. What was the Islamic awakening in the late 70s and in Saudi Arabia, and how did it impact bin Laden? The principal event of the uh, awakening in Saudi Arabia in the 70s was the takeover of the Grand Mosque in Mecca in 1979. Uh, I don't think that affected bin Laden uh, nearly as much as it affected the Saudi regime, um, which, uh, and, and I suppose in a sense, it indirectly affected bin Laden in that the regime uh, found itself in a position where it felt necessary to uh, cater more to the, the radical Islamist uh, trend of thought within the kingdom. And so that tended to give uh, more latitude and more respectability to that trend of thought, which of course is one that bin Laden eventually took up. Full disclosure, I'm a former graduate student of Paul Pillars. Getting back to the story, it was the fourth event in that list, the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, that was the first step on the long journey that would culminate with 9-11 almost 22 years later. Here's former Washington Post Moscow correspondent Peter Baker. Well, it's really a key moment. Yeah, no question about it, because that's when uh, the United States becomes, you know, sponsor of the Mujahideen that ultimately helps push the Soviets out over the course of the next 10 years. Uh, but, you know, leaves the country behind in a very fractious uh, uh, state of conflict. And ultimately, some of those same people that were our allies, of course, became our enemies years later. Here's then President of the United States, Jimmy Carter, addressing the nation about the invasion of Afghanistan on January 4th, 1980. Massive Soviet military forces have invaded the small, non-aligned, sovereign nation of Afghanistan which had hitherto not been an occupied satellite of the Soviet Union. 50,000 heavily armed Soviet troops have crossed the border and are now dispersed throughout Afghanistan, attempting to conquer 
the fiercely independent Muslim people of that country. The invasion and occupation of Afghanistan had the most profound impact on bin Laden and many Muslims all over the world. Bin Laden told CNN, quote, The news was broadcast by radio stations that the Soviet Union invaded a Muslim country. This was sufficient motivation for me to aid our brothers in Afghanistan. Najwa bin Laden described her husband's reaction at the time, quote, My husband appeared more agitated than most. He constantly sought news of what was happening in Afghanistan, whether from Muslim sources or international news media. The more he learned, the more anxious he became. He was more upset than I had ever seen him regarding stories of innocent Muslim women and children who were being imprisoned and tortured to death. The accounts he knew but refused to share must have been horrific, for it seemed that my husband's heart had been burned to a crisp. According to his mother, Aliyah Ghanem, quote, He was very straight, very good at school. He really liked to study. He spent all his money on Afghanistan. He would sneak off under the guise of family business. Asked if she thought he might ever become a jihadist, she responded, quote, It never crossed my mind. Her reaction to the life he chose, quote, We were extremely upset. I did not want any of this to happen. Why would he throw it all away like that? It's worth noting that his mother isn't exactly an objective source. Her son, Ahmad Alatas, Osama's half-brother, told The Guardian, quote, It has been 17 years now since 9-11, and she remains in denial about Osama. She loved him so much and refuses to blame him. Instead, she blames those around him. She only knows the good boy side, the side we all saw. She never got to know the jihadist side. Muslims from around the world headed to Afghanistan to fight jihad, in this particular context meaning holy war, against the Soviet invaders. A communist government had taken over the country in 1978, but was, quote, unable to establish enduring control, according to the 9-11 Commission. What was the Soviets' objective for the invasion, according to former CIA officer Milt Bearden? Well, you had a, uh, an aging Politburo led by uh, Leonid Brezhnev, and they were worried about Islamic fundamentalism beginning to to uh, two things. One, that was moving against their friendly socialist government in a neighboring fraternal socialist state, Afghanistan, coming under pressure. And that same Islamic uh, fervor began to bleed over into um, the Soviet uh, republics along the border with Afghanistan that had such large, large um, populations uh, 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 who were Muslim. So they thought uh, America had probably still licking its wounds from being run out of Southeast Asia a few years earlier. And uh, their assessment of Jimmy Carter was that, uh, you know, he's occupied about 110% with a hostage crisis over in, in Iran. And so why don't we go in and kind of clean up this mess in Kabul very quickly, tidy it up, and then uh, we'll be home before Carter even notices. And so that was essentially what was going on in, in uh, 1979. So on a snowy Christmas Eve, they brought in a bunch of airborne troops and uh, Ministry of Interior troops, and uh, they killed off the right people in the, in the government and moved their guy in. And then, then began making all of the classic mistakes that everybody throughout uh, history has made uh, in Afghanistan and ended up not being able to tidy it up 
quickly, but uh, taking uh, you know uh, ten years before they had to give it up, and at the same time lost their empire. The Carter administration's decision to support the Afghan rebels was part of the broader U.S. Cold War policy of containment, according to former CIA analyst Paul Pillar. Certainly, uh, the Carter administration, and particularly in the person of uh, National Security Advisor Brzezinski, uh, saw this as an opportunity to uh, distract and weaken uh, the Soviet regime. And insofar as containment was the the larger policy, uh, this was a supplement to that. Um, it, it, it was thought of very much in Cold War terms, uh, in terms of uh, restraining the Soviets, and not very much at all in South Asian terms or what the political and social future of Afghanistan itself would look like. Carter let the Soviets and the world know that he would not allow their invasion to stand without consequence. He was uh, uh, pretty tough in response, they canceled the American participation in the Moscow Olympics. He imposed a grain embargo. Uh, you know, he's very clear in, in making uh, uh, denunciation of the Soviet aggression, that this was something that, that, that was not acceptable. It ended up killing his arms control treaty with the Soviets that he had painstakingly negotiated. So it was a big rupture, and he, and he took a tough stand. Uh, but it was only later that we began to start arming, uh, you know, the Afghans in the way that uh, would, would become pretty critical later. The American response included authorization for lethal action. When they moved into Afghanistan, uh, that was a big step. And uh, they, uh, their assessment was just dead wrong about the, the U.S. reaction. I don't think that any U.S. president could have just said, oh, well, boys will be boys and let them get by with it. Uh, so the decision was made by Carter to issue what is called a presidential finding. That's an instruction to CIA to go do something. And uh, this finding that, Car that, that uh, Jimmy Carter uh, issued after the Soviet invasion uh, added lethality to, to any other findings on CIA providing uh, non-lethal assistance to the Afghans, uh, uh, which had been in place for a while. And so it, the new finding said, uh, okay, you can start doing stuff that ends up lethal, which means uh, <clears throat> killing Russians. Jimmy Carter decides to arm the anti-communist rebels in the country. This covert action plan would come to be known as Operation Cyclone. It started small, but as time passed, it would grow exponentially by the mid-1980s. After Carter uh, uh, issued that lethal finding uh, shortly after the uh, uh, Soviet invasion, uh, CIA scrambled to uh, start deliveries of weapons and began with delivering uh, a couple of shiploads of British infield rifles, which were the favorites of, of the Afghans anyway, at any rate. Then CIA does what it does very well and created a covert uh, procurement operation that began bringing in uh, all of the Warsaw Pact designed weapons that the Soviets used themselves. Uh, in Afghanistan, 
so that uh, we were providing no more British infields, but AK-47s, AK-74s, all of the uh, Soviet mortars and recoilless rifles and, and uh, uh, free flight uh, rockets, everything that they, that they themselves used so that all of the stuff that was being delivered to the Afghans uh, would, could, could operate on ammunition from Soviet uh, and Afghan army quartermasters. So, uh, <clears throat> you know, what began with a few 30, 40, $50 million grew uh, pretty rapidly to a couple hundred million. And then by the time Bill Casey sent me out in 86, uh, he said, you can have a billion dollars a year if you need it. So, um, and, and we were able to deliver, you know, 50, 60,000 tons of stuff a year to them. All of it, uh, Soviet Warsaw Pact design stuff, except the stingers. We'll get back to the stingers in a few minutes, but it's worth noting that the United States was not the only foreign power involved. Saudi Arabia, Egypt, United Kingdom, and China were all supporting the anti-Soviet effort in their own ways with money or weapons. According to the 9-11 Commission, American assistance was, quote, funneled through Pakistan. January 20th, 1981. So help me God. Now I congratulate you, sir. Ronald Wilson Reagan is sworn in as the 40th President of the United States. He was a staunch anti-communist on foreign policy. Although he ran against almost everything Jimmy Carter had done or stood for as President, he would continue Carter's policy of supporting the Afghan rebels. Here's part of his Afghanistan Day address on March 10th, 1982. The Afghans, like the Poles, wish nothing more, as you've just been so eloquently told, than to live their lives in peace, to practice their religion in freedom, and to exercise their right to self-determination. As a consequence, they now find themselves struggling for their very survival as a nation. Nowhere are basic human rights more brutally violated than in Afghanistan today. I have spoken on occasion of the presence of unsung heroes in American life. Today we recognize a nation of unsung heroes whose courageous struggle is one of the epics of our time. The Afghan people have matched their heroism against the most terrifying weapons of modern warfare in the Soviet arsenal. Despite blanket bombing, and chemical and biological weapons, the brave Afghan freedom fighters have prevented the nearly 100,000-strong Soviet occupation force from extending its control over a large portion of the countryside. Their heroic struggle has carried a terrible cost. Many thousands of Afghans, often innocent civilians, women and children, have been killed and maimed. Entire villages and regions have been destroyed and depopulated. Some three million people have been driven into exile. That's one out of every five Afghans. The lack of American controls in the distribution of the weapons posed its own risks. According to political scientist Alan Cooperman, once American weapons were in the hands of Pakistan's military intelligence service, the best ones were often given to Gulbuddin Hekmatyar, who he described as, quote, the most radical rebel leader and certainly not the Americans' first choice. The reason for this favoritism was that Hikmatyar supported the Muslim insurgency in Kashmir. An unidentified Afghan rebel was quoted as saying, 
we do sell some of your weapons. We are doing it for the day when your country decides to abandon us, just as you abandoned Vietnam and everyone else you deal with. According to a 2010 study, the CIA, with financial assistance from Saudi Arabia, sent an estimated six to nine billion dollars worth of weapons to the Afghan rebels. On the other side, the Soviets sent the Afghan government an estimated 5.7 billion dollars worth of arms and equipment. Quote, on a per capita basis, Afghanistan became one of the most heavily armed nations on earth. Trapped in the middle of it were the Afghan people, whose homeland had become a war zone. When the Soviets invaded at the end of 1979, Afghanistan had a population of approximately 15 million people. According to Amnesty International, there were more than 4 million Afghan refugees living in Pakistan by the end of 1980. That number would grow to 5 million refugees in Pakistan and Iran by the end of 1984. As of 2019, there were more than 2.6 million Afghan refugees around the world, the second highest number for any nation behind only Syria. It was an absolutely brutal war by... You can call the Soviet Union a superpower because they had, you know, 25,000 nuclear rockets that would go downrange. So they, they qualified. But um, otherwise, they were kind of like a giant third world army, but it was really brutal stuff. And I've been in and out and seen villages that uh, that have been gone through. And it's, you know, so you'd have to understand that a an absolutely brutal war that uh, took, either killed, wounded, or drove into exile a third of the population of that country. Milt Bearden was the CIA chief of station in Islamabad, Pakistan, beginning in the summer of 1986, a post he held through the end of the Soviet occupation. This is how he described his job responsibilities during that period. The job for the chief of station at that time in Pakistan was uh, Afghanistan, running running the agency's covert action uh, to shove the Soviets out of Afghanistan. Well, I was, to, to describe it in an easy way, uh, you think back to uh, you know, 19th century British political agent and quartermaster. Uh, in the Northwest Frontier. I, I was a uh, quartermaster for the Mujahideen and uh, sort of a political agent with the Pakistanis and the Mujahideen. Back at Langley, Diana Balsinger was an analyst on the CIA's Afghan task force. The Afghan task force did logistics, getting the weapons to Pakistan. It did the financing for the training, for the activities. It did outside of the United States, worldwide uh, pro-resistance propaganda. It did, uh, the it did do monitoring more and more as the Afghan war went on, as there were increasing concerns about corruption, about money and weapons, finding their way in other directions. It did start to do more and more oversight of where is the stuff going. But primarily in this case, it was a logistics operation more than anything else. After several years, the war had largely been going the Soviets' way. 
That all changed in the late summer of 1986. Beginning in August of that year, the CIA began shipping Stinger missiles to Pakistan to arm Afghan fighters. The website globalsecurity.org describes the Stinger as, quote, a man-portable, shoulder-fired guided missile system, which enables the soldier to effectively engage low-altitude jet-propeller-driven and helicopter aircraft. A key component of the Soviet counterinsurgency strategy was air superiority. The Afghans had limited, often ineffective, air defenses, if any. According to political scientist Alan Cooperman, Pakistani President Mohammad Zia-ul-Haq was initially opposed to the introduction of American weapons into the conflict, out of fear that the Soviets would trace them back to Pakistan. In 1982, President Hawk had told then-CIA Director Bill Casey that the key to Afghanistan was to, quote, keep the pot boiling, meaning arm the Mujahideen just enough to keep up the fight against the Soviets, but too much escalation would cause the pot to boil over, resulting in Soviet retaliation against Pakistan. President Hawk also feared that a stinger would fall into the hands of his enemies, who might potentially use it to shoot down his presidential plane. He would later die in a plane crash under mysterious circumstances in 1988. His views carried a great deal of weight inside the Reagan administration because the U.S. strategy in Afghanistan was entirely dependent on Pakistan's cooperation, a scenario that would repeat itself decades later. American officials had their own reasons for not wanting to send stingers. A senior Department of Defense official would recall years later that in 1983, there was a very real fear that a million Soviet troops might roll into Pakistan in retaliation. Another possible concern was that the Soviets would respond in kind by supplying anti-aircraft missiles to leftist rebels that were fighting the United States-backed government in El Salvador. There were also concerns that the Soviets would get their hands on a stinger and reverse engineer it to develop countermeasures that would protect their aircraft. What were stinger missiles and why were they such a game changer? The most effective weapons that the Soviets had at that time were the Mi-24 Delta attack helicopters. They were uh, very well armored on, on the bottom. Uh, and there was nothing that the Afghans had that could really bring them down. 12.7 machine gun rounds would bounce off in the bottoms. And so they were really, really uh, getting hammered by these, uh, these, these attack helicopters. We'd given them some surface-to-air, uh, shoulder-fire surface-to-air missiles, Soviet designs, SAM-7s, but they were really crappy. They were Soviet copies of a very old American system that wasn't effective at all. They had to have something that would, 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 would make a change on this. And after much debate and arguing in Washington, we decided to give them the Stinger. And the Stinger missile was a, uh, a fire and forget missile <clears throat> that you could, uh, that, that homed in on the infrared uh, signature of, the, of the, the helicopter. So all you did and I could train you or your nine-year-old son on it in, in a couple of hours, really. Uh, you, you, you look out, you find uh, your target out there a couple of kilometers away, turn the thing on, and, uh, and it tells you, I've got it. It, it sort of vibrates on your cheek and makes a, makes a beeping sound. And 
And then you just uh, elevate it a little bit and pull the trigger and that nice white tail follows that missile over the blue sky and pop. And so uh, <clears throat> that changed the war. Uh, it changed, changed it on both sides. Mujahideen fighters first used the Singer in combat on September 25, 1986. They fired five missiles and shot down three Soviet Mi-24 Hind helicopters on their first try, according to Alan Cooperman. There are estimates that have tried to quantify the effectiveness of the Stinger missile, although the numbers may not be entirely reliable. A 1987 study published in Armed Forces Journal International credits the introduction of Stingers and British-made blowpipe missiles with destroying 270 Soviet aircraft between October of 1986 and September of 1987, assuming a kill rate of 33%. General Mohammad Yusuf, who was Director of Afghan Operations for Pakistani Military Intelligence, estimated that in their first 10 months of use, 187 Stingers were fired, of which 75% hit their intended targets, resulting in approximately 140 downed aircraft. Alan Cooperman assumes these numbers are based on Mujahideen self-reporting, and he notes, quote, the reliability of which is unknown. In contrast, Yusuf notes that the Pakistani army fired 28 stingers without a single kill, though they were constrained by having to stay on their side of the border. Regardless of the numbers, the stinger missile forced the Soviets to change tactics. In doing so, they were able to mitigate some of the risks to their pilots. On the Soviet side, uh, there was a, a, a very rational fear of being shot down and captured. Uh, by the Mujahideen because they might amuse themselves with their knives on captured pilots. And, and so uh, once the first uh, shootdowns occurred in September 1986, uh, the Soviets uh, pretty drastically changed their air tactics and they, they, they tried to keep above a couple thousand meters and that made them almost ineffective. And so it, it turned the war around, that little $75,000 missile. According to a 1999 article by Alan Cooperman, between 900 and 1,200 Stingers were shipped to Afghanistan during the conflict, though potentially as many as hundreds of missiles remained unaccounted for after it was over. The CIA implemented a buyback program, which resulted in the recovery of some of them. According to Milt Bearden, most Stingers have been accounted for, and any that might still be out there decades later aren't much cause for concern. I'd say pretty much accounted for, and now we're talking about the last ones were delivered in 1988. So that's 30-some-odd years. There are some unique things on a Stinger. Uh, there is a very special battery, battery cooling unit and a few other things that, that will not survive time. And okay. uh, you can't just replace it by going down the radio shack. So uh, I'd say if whatever's left out there under somebody's bunk uh, is inoperative. It should be noted that in 2001, an Al-Qaeda defector testified in court under oath that the group had in its possession a Stinger and a Milan anti-tank missile. They wanted to ship both weapons from Afghanistan to Sudan during an unspecified date in the early 90s. According to Diana Balsinger, this was the type of scenario that intelligence analysts had warned policymakers about. I'd have been more surprised if they hadn't got a hold of one. Uh, the thing is, quite honestly, 
my DI office, and this was before I joined the office, but I have seen a lot of the cable traffic involved. DI analysts in the CIA, along with State Department INR, made very, very clear in uh, multiple documents, PDB, et cetera, that if we provided stingers to the Afghan resistance through the Pakistanis, we had no way whatsoever of guaranteeing that those stingers would not end up in terrorist hands. One of the things we essentially said in so many words was, if you make this decision, be prepared for a passenger airliner to be shot down. One other major factor in ending the conflict was the election of Mikhail Gorbachev as the General Secretary of the Soviet Union in March of 1985. He had not been involved in the original decision to invade Afghanistan six years earlier, and as a member of the Politburo in 1983, he had called the war a mistake during a conversation with a Canadian government official. Here's former Washington Post Moscow correspondent Peter Baker. So he was a reformer. Uh, coming in in the late 80s. And he wanted to get, he wanted to kind of tamp down the Cold War. He didn't want to have a big confrontation with the United States and the West because he needed to focus on fixing his domestic problems, not, uh, you know, we'll, you know, waging some sort of global uh, contest of, 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 of geopolitical actors. Would you say that Gorbachev was the partner Reagan had been looking for? Yeah, I think that's right. And I think, you know, when Reagan eventually goes to Moscow for the first time as president, he's in Red Square, he's asked, well, you call it a red, evil empire. What do you think today? And he says that was another time. And he had moved past his own early rhetoric to, to, to see a new Russia emerging, one that he hoped would be uh, more friendly, more democratic, more capitalist, uh, less repressive. And, and Gorbachev was the partner uh, in that transformation. Once he was in power, evidence suggests that Gorbachev's decision to withdraw was motivated not by the cost of the war or domestic popular opinion. His view was that a continued presence in Afghanistan was an impediment to his domestic agenda of economic reforms. That agenda depended on the renewal of economic and technological cooperation with the West. The actual change in the Politburo's Afghanistan policy finally happened in November of 1986, the first of two key shifts was leaving a neutral Afghan government in place rather than a Soviet-friendly one. The second was that the Politburo gave itself a maximum two-year deadline to withdraw. In May of 1988, the Soviet Union disclosed figures for its casualties during the Eight-Year War. 13,310 soldiers killed, 35,478 wounded, and 311 missing. These numbers are close to the U.S. government's estimates at the time, with some slight differences. Nine years, one month, and 21 days after the initial invasion, the Soviet army withdrew its last forces from the country on February 15, 1989. Remember the debate over the actual date of Osama bin Laden's birthday? If Nashua bin Laden's account is correct, this means that the Soviet Union withdrew their final soldiers on her husband's 32nd birthday. She wrote in her memoir, quote, Although Muslims do not celebrate birthdays, Osama said he felt that day was filled with the most important gift, that the war he had fought for so long had finally been won. Between 1979 and 1989, the CIA sent an estimated $2 billion worth of weapons, logistical support, and training to the Afghan Mujahideen as part of Operation Cyclone. 32 years since the end of the program, 
As of this writing, it is still listed as a Guinness World Record for the most expensive covert action in history. The Americans and Saudis, along with their hundreds of millions of dollars in assistance which had supported resistance and humanitarian efforts for years, followed the Russians out the door in the weeks and months after. As former CIA analyst Paul Pillar explained, the Afghans left behind, who weren't always on the same page for political or ethnic reasons, had to pick up the pieces of their war-torn country. Would it be fair to characterize Afghanistan between the, the Soviet withdrawal and the, the rise of the Taliban as, as a failed state or a series of failed states? Oh, I think Afghanistan after the Soviet withdrawal very much was a failed state. I mean, there was you know, there were some compromises reached among the uh, the warlord factions. Uh, we did have you know an interim president, an interim prime minister, but these uh these arrangements broke down very quickly you had somebody like Goldin Hikmatyar who was you know shelling the capital even though he was supposedly part of the coalition that uh, was in power after after the Soviets left and the Najibullah regime was overthrown so yes failed state uh, very much uh, was an appropriate label for Afghanistan at that time the dates of Osama bin Laden's involvement in Afghanistan are contradictory depending on the source Bin Laden once said he went to Afghanistan not long after the Soviet invasion. This would appear consistent with the 9-11 Commission report, which said he was 23 when he first arrived in the country in 1980. But his close friend Jamal Khalifa said that Bin Laden did not set foot in the country until 1984, at age 27. Najwa Bin Laden said that for a period of about three years, her husband was shuttling back and forth between Jeddah and Peshawar, Pakistan, with an occasional foray across the border into Afghanistan. He was presumably getting more involved with the Afghan resistance during this period, where he was aiding the rebels, raising money for them, and spending time with his family when possible, like a soldier on leave from the front. He would be gone for weeks or months at a time, while she remained at home in Saudi Arabia with their four boys. In time, bin Laden would relocate his entire family to Peshawar. According to a declassified State Department intelligence assessment, there were an estimated 4,000 to 25,000 non-Afghan volunteers during the conflict, the majority of them Arabs. Quoting from the document, The Arab Mujahideen were considered highly motivated and prepared to die for the Jihad. Many spent their own money to volunteer. Up to 30% reportedly were considered criminals or outlaws in their own countries. Some may have joined the war effort primarily to get hands-on military training. The foreigners who traveled to Pakistan to fight the Soviets were often referred to as the Afghan Arabs, regardless of their nationality. They would generally travel to Peshawar, a city in the northwest of Pakistan, about 35 miles east of the Afghan border, and about 180 miles east of the Afghan capital city of Kabul. But who were they? It was like a club med thing. It was, uh, it was uh, you had everybody. You had somebody who was deeply, honestly going there to do something for these poor Afghans being slaughtered by godless commie Russians, or you had the adventurers, or you had uh, quite a few that were from, more from Egypt, but from other Middle East countries, including Saudi Arabia and the Emirates, where they emptied their prisons. Uh, of their bad boys and got them a ticket to go over there. And I guess they were hoping they'd step on a landmine or something like that. Diana Balsinger was an intelligence analyst at the time. Because of her background in anthropology and Islamic radicalism, she was assigned to cover the Mujahideen. It was circa 
1987-ish, we started getting reports from, I would say, three different sources. One, we would have some uh, reporting through diplomatic clandestine channels and even more through uh, just journalists going into Afghanistan, hanging out in the shower, talking about these crazy Arabs who really were, the Muj thought for the most part, they were more trouble than they were worth because they were alienating the villagers by desecrating Afghan graveyards, uh, which had all kinds of banners and decorations that the Afghan Arabs thought were haram. These guys were crazy doing suicidal operations. And this is long before suicide terrorism caught on in Afghanistan. The Muj uh, were willing to become martyrs, but they really would rather live to fight another day. And so these Afghan Arabs were dangerous. And then they just were saying crazy things. And a couple of the Afghan leaders were joining in. I remember in one particular case, Gulbuddin Hekmatyar, who uh, dealt with a lot of these Arabs, gave a very public speech about, well, first we take care of Moscow, then we liberate Jerusalem, and then we conquer Washington, D.C. And so, yes, we were, uh, I do remember writing a PDB on all of this. I do remember a few other articles on it here and there. They were nowhere near what in hindsight they should have been. Osama bin Laden wasn't the only future high-level member of al-Qaeda in Peshawar during the 80s. His future deputy, Ayman al-Zawahiri, came to work as a medic. The future mastermind of the 9-11 attacks, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, was working at the newspaper published by Abdul Rasul Sayyaf's political party, Islamic Union, and teaching engineering at a university affiliated with the party. Many of the founding members of al-Qaeda met and knew bin Laden from this period. The Pakistani government gave visas to anybody who wanted to fight the Russians. The national airline of Saudi Arabia offered discount jihad fares for flights leaving from Riyadh and Jeddah. According to journalists Terry McDermott and Josh Mayer, more than 150 organizations set up relief offices in Bishawar during the course of the war. The situation could be characterized as too many chefs in the kitchen. Quote, There were so many charities wanting to work in the region that three separate coordinating councils were required to sort out their good deeds. According to Terry McDermott, few of the Arabs who traveled to Peshawar saw any actual combat. Quote, they were largely regarded by the various Afghan armies as a necessary nuisance to be abided in exchange for the money that followed them. One of the resistance leaders of that era told him, quote, I was against the Arab volunteers to come and fight with us. When they came to see me, I told them they shouldn't have come. They should have saved the money for the ticket and instead donated the money for our struggle. The Arabs were not experienced fighters. They came from the desert. They didn't know the mountains. They weren't familiar with our traditions and culture. This is consistent with what Diana Balsinger was hearing at the time. You got a lot of these chubby, spoiled university kids who'd show up wanting fun and adventure. And life in Afghanistan is rough. And 
God forbid, they get dysentery uh, out on the road and they're eating rice and uh, naan for the 20th meal in a row and they have to hike up this mountain. I mean, some of the stories from the Afghans that we were hearing were just pitiful. I mean, you almost feel sorry for these blithering idiots who got themselves in over their head. This created a self-reinforcing dynamic where the Afghans didn't want to use Arab fighters and the Arabs that did want to fight would get frustrated that they wouldn't get picked for combat missions. According to Lawrence Wright, bin Laden told people he was a courier delivering donations from wealthy Saudis. There is a crucial distinction that should be noted. The CIA only supported Afghan rebels, with Pakistan's military intelligence service doing the actual training and distribution of weapons. It did not support the Arab fighters who came from abroad. There is an erroneous, widely held belief or conspiracy theory that the agency was somehow involved with Osama bin Laden. Did you ever hear about this, you know, this wealthy Saudi named Osama bin Laden at the time while he was bankrolling these these Arabs, these foreign Arabs? You know, uh, I've answered that by saying I, I kept very loose track about what was going on at the shower. Uh, all of the foreigners that were out there throwing money around, and they were doing basically stuff that was not at all incompatible with our our mission by you know building these uh, orphanages and all of that kind of stuff. Even some stuff inside Afghanistan, logistics work and building some road stuff. And I, I my answer to that question is that yeah, I think. Probably I knew that name at one point, but only in in a 1987 or 88 uh, context when it meant nothing to anybody. Did the agency ever train, finance, or arm Osama bin Laden during the war? No, no, no. I've you know I've uh, that's an easy one. And uh, the the agency never trained any Arabs or financed any of them or otherwise gave them any sort of support whatsoever and in particular well yeah uh, and, and bin laden was among the people we never did anything with or to bearden's comments are supported by other sources in his memoir the bear trap general muhammad yusuf wrote quote no americans ever trained or had direct contact with the mujahideen in his autobiographical publication nights under the banner of the prophet Emin al-zawahiri wrote quote the truth that everyone should learn is that the United States did not give one penny in aid to the Arab Mujahideen. In his History of the Jihadist Movement, The Call to Global Islamic Resistance, Abu Musab al-Suri wrote, quote, It is a big lie that the Afghan Arabs were formed with the backing of the CIA. And finally, bin Laden himself told British journalist Robert Fisk in 1993, quote, Personally, neither I nor my brother saw evidence of American help. Bin Laden spent a significant part of the 80s in Afghanistan and Pakistan. During this time, he used construction equipment from the Bin Laden family's business operations to build shelters, tunnels, and roads in the Afghan mountains for the Mujahideen to use. He also raised money for them, in addition to providing humanitarian and logistical aid. According to Peter Bergen's book, Holy War, Inc., by December of 1984, Bin Laden was subsidizing the Afghan Arabs at a cost of $25,000 a month. 
According to a source involved in the movement who spoke to Terry McDermott, Osama bin Laden moved his wives and children to Peshawar in 1986 and lived there until 1989. During this period, he would gain battlefield experience which would figure prominently in the Bin Laden and Mujahideen legend later on. Between 1986 and 1987, Bin Laden built a base in eastern Afghanistan for his fighters. He named it Al-Masada, the Lion's Den. It was near the village of Jaji, about 10 miles from the Pakistani border. According to a Bin Laden biography by former CIA analyst Michael Scheuer, by mid-April of 1987, the camp had seven or eight buildings and housed an estimated 70 fighters. April 17, 1987. Soviet helicopters and bombers start hitting Al-Masada. The battle lasts for about a week. According to Steve Call, it was Bin Laden and 50 Arabs facing off against an estimated 200 Russians. The Arabs lost about a dozen fighters and held their position for several days before ultimately withdrawing because they could no longer hold it. Among the Arab fighters in this battle with Bin Laden were Abu Beda al-Banshiri and Abu Hafs al-Masri. Both men would go on to become founding members of Al-Qaeda and serve as the organization's first two military commanders. Several years later, Bin Laden would tell British journalist Robert Fisk, quote, I was never afraid of death. As Muslims, we believe that when we die, we go to heaven. Before a battle, God sends us Sakina, tranquility. Once I was only 30 meters from the Russians, and they were trying to capture me. I was under bombardment, but I was so peaceful in my heart that I fell asleep. Why was this battle so significant? Terrorism scholar Aaron Zellin explains. Because the fact that uh, these Arabs were able to hold off sort of this, uh, so, uh, this Soviet group of people that were trying to take over some areas in Jaji, um, and they didn't even necessarily take territory per se, um, but because they're able to survive, essentially, it was seen as this great thing that happened because, um, uh, you know, it was, it was more than that had been done by any of the foreign Arab foreign fighters that had gone there previously, because usually they're sort of uh, disregarded because they didn't have any actual military experience, most of them. In other words, even though it was ultimately a retreat, this battle at Jaji was considered a huge propaganda victory for Bin Laden's fighters because they had held their own against the Soviet onslaught. In the aftermath of Jaji, Bin Laden's fame and reputation begins to grow locally among the Afghan and Arab fighters, and globally thanks to glowing media coverage. One of the first reports about Bin Laden in the mainstream Arab media at the time was written by a Saudi journalist named Jamal Khashoggi. Here's an excerpt from a report he filed that was published in Arab News on May 4, 1988. As many as a thousand Arab youths are in Afghanistan. They are actively involved in the war and activities such as teaching, medical service, and relief work. Most come from Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Yemen, Syria, Algeria, Libya, and Morocco. Some of the Arab Mujahideen are from affluent families. For example, Osama bin Laden, known as Abu Abdullah, is a famous Saudi contractor and comes from the renowned Saudi business family of that name. Jaji would become a central part of the Al-Qaeda and bin Laden mythology that a ragtag bunch of Mujahideen defeated the Soviet Union and forced them out of Afghanistan. This view conveniently leaves out the heavy fighting done by the Afghan rebels and the assistance they were getting from Pakistan, Saudi Arabia, and the United States. Essentially, Al-Qaeda co-opted what the local Afghan forces essentially did, uh, not what the actual Arabs did in the fight. The Arabs were mainly involved in a lot of uh, facilitation, recruitment, fundraising, 
many of them just crossed the border into Afghanistan, took a picture with a Kalashnikov, sort of like a, a vacation for many people, and then went back home a week later. Um, there were, of course, a number of Arabs that did fight and were inserted in some of the battalions with the major Afghan uh, forces uh, during the 1980s. But uh, much of the narrative that Al-Qaeda tried to pursue that they overthrew some uh, superpower um, in the Soviet Union, it was more the local Afghans that did it than anything. According to the 9-11 Commission, Osama bin Laden and Abdullah Azam co-founded Mektab al-Khidmat, known in English as the Services Bureau or the Services Office. Its purpose was to, quote, channel recruits into Afghanistan. According to Terry McDermott, Azam established the office with bin Laden's financing. Quote, the office served as a central clearinghouse for Arab volunteers who began to come in such numbers that somebody had to do something to sort them out and, if nothing else, give them directions to the Afghan border. Who was Abdullah Azam? He was a Palestinian academic and a very influential thinker among radical Islamists. Terrorism scholar and Geodology.net founder Aaron Zellin and journalist Terry McDermott explain his importance. Abdullah Azam is essentially the key mobilizer of the foreign fighter phenomenon in Afghanistan in the 1980s. And therefore, he sort of created this whole um, network of people that would then lead to these various other endeavors after the Soviet-Afghan war, um, which continues to be relevant to this day. He's the creator of the modern idea of jihad. He's the theoretician of it. And then he, he practiced it, too. I mean, he went to Afghanistan. And he also provided sort of the ideological backing and undergirding and legitimizing in some ways of people being able to go over there to fight, um, essentially saying that it was an individual duty upon all Muslims to go, not just those locally in Afghanistan, which sort of um, extended a theological argument that there's been made historically where you know, if a foreign occupation happens. The fact that Azam had a PhD from Al-Azhar definitely provided a lot of um, uh, legitimacy and backing to what he was saying, because it wasn't just some random person talking about it that doesn't have sort of the training within Islam or in theology. He was born on the West Bank in 1941. He fought in the Six-Day War in 1967. He left Palestine shortly after, never to return, though it was a subject not far from his thoughts and his published writings. According to McDermott, Azam joined the Muslim Brotherhood and later on helped found Hamas as a quote, Islamic alternative to the Palestinian Liberation Organization. During his academic career, he would earn degrees from universities in Jordan and Syria before completing his doctorate at Al-Azhar University in Cairo, which Peter Bergen once called quote, the Harvard of Islamic thought. He also described it as a Vatican for Sunni Muslims. After the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, Azam went straight to Pakistan, eventually settling in Peshawar. He wrote, quote, Jihad and the rifle alone. No negotiations, no conferences, no dialogues. According to Terry McDermott, quote, Azam, more than any man, popularized the modern notion of the contemporary Muslim's duty to wage holy war. Azam did not limit his efforts to support the cause to speeches and writings. He was fundraising and networking around the world. He also was taking many trips outside um, in different parts of the Arab world, um, as well as in uh, the United States and, and uh, elsewhere, um, to recruit different people to join up. Um, I mean, they had this whole 
magazine, uh, El Jihad, where they're using it as a way to promote what was going on and what they were doing, but also as a way to recruit people locally. And, you know, there are numbers in it to find local recruiters. And that then led people to be able to go there in the first place. What was Azam's relationship to Bin Laden during this period? And would it be fair to describe him as a mentor to, you know, the 20-something Bin Laden at that point in his life? I think that in the beginning, they're seen as sort of this mentor-student relationship in some regards, just because of the experience that Azam did have. But over time, as they're building up the network in Pakistan, they became more colleagues in many respects, um, collaborating together. And then, of course, towards the end, uh, there became more, not necessarily like issues where they hated each other, but bin Laden foresaw a different path as the war was winding down in Afghanistan compared to um, Azam. And then Azam also was interested in backing different Afghan individuals and forces compared to bin Laden. And therefore, because of that, that's one of the reasons why uh, bin Laden wanted to create Al-Qaeda in contrast to the Services Bureau, um, because he felt that more needed to be done since much of the Services Bureau operations were sort of at the behest and helping on behalf of the Afghans, whereas bin Laden wanted to have more autonomy where the Arabs sort of did their own thing. In summary, the sticking point that drove them apart was control and direction of the Services Bureau. There was evidence that Abdullah Azam's days were numbered. In October of 1989, someone planted a bomb in the mosque where he preached, but it was spotted by a cleaner and the attempt was foiled. On the morning of November 23, 1989, Abdullah Azam was in a car on his way to the Arab mosque in Peshawar, where he was supposed to lead the Friday prayers. He had just left his home when his car was hit by a roadside bomb, killing Azam and two of his sons who were traveling with him. Local gossip and speculation has pinned the killing on a range of suspects, including the CIA, the Mossad, the KGB, the Afghans, and even Ayman al-Zawahiri himself. More than three decades later, Azam's assassination remains unsolved. In 1984, Bin Laden created a safe house in Peshawar. The house was called Beit al-Anzar, House of the Supporters, a reference to the Prophet Muhammad's followers who helped him when he had to flee Mecca. It was initially a stopping point for volunteers who would later go on to further military training elsewhere. Later on, it would be the setting for a major event in this story. It was at Beit al-Anzar where, on August 11, 1988, Bin Laden and Mohammed Loai Bayezid first discussed the idea of forming a, quote, new military group. According to the minutes of that meeting, it would be called Al-Qaeda, which means the base in Arabic. The idea was to keep the infrastructure and support system created to fight the Soviets going for potential jihad in the future. The initial goal was to have 314 brothers trained within six months. As to the origin of the organization's name, Bin Laden credited it to his original military commander during a 2001 interview with Al Jazeera. In his words, quote, that particular name is very old. It was born without any intention from us. Brother Abu Ubaid al-Banshiri created a military base to train the young men to fight against a vicious, arrogant, brutal, terrorizing Soviet empire, which was a truth to all observers. So this place was called the base, as in a training base. So this name grew and became. A more formal discussion about the formation of Al-Qaeda took place over a three-day period beginning on August 18th. 
During this series of meetings, Bin Laden heard complaints about mismanagement and bad treatment at the services office, discussed the military training component of the Al-Qaeda curriculum, and set the criteria for admission, and wrote the pledge that all recruits must take. The pledge, known as a bayat, was an oath of allegiance to Osama Bin Laden and Al-Qaeda. The document describes the nascent organization that will become Al-Qaeda as, quote, basically an organized Islamic faction, and adds that its goal will be to lift the word of God to make his religion victorious. According to the minutes, quote, the meeting ended on the evening of Saturday, August 20th. Work of Al-Qaeda commenced on September 10th, 1988, with a group of 15 brothers, including nine administrative brothers. Almost 13 years to the day before the 9-11 attacks, the countdown begins. That's it for this episode of Zero Hour, a history of 9-11. If you want to learn more, go to the website zerohourpod.com, where I've included a list of articles, documents, and links that I used in my research. The next episode will look at Osama bin Laden's life from 1989 through 1996, how his political activism ran him afoul of the Saudi royal family and forced him to leave his native Saudi Arabia for Sudan. The episode will also look at al-Qaeda's first confrontation with American soldiers in Somalia. I'm David DeSola. Thank you for listening.